Okay, start over. A handful of years ago, my wife and I decided we're going to build a deck on the back of our house. There was an existing deck. You've heard this part already, but it was rotting. And uh, it was not big enough for us to really sit out or to entertain or to do any of that kind of stuff. So we got really excited. Oh, this is going to be cool. We go into the backyard and we started uh, mapping out where it would be and what the shape would be and how big it would be. And we're putting up little posts and it's going to go to this part and this part. And then we're thinking about uh, furniture for it. And this is where we're going to put the patio furniture out on it and think of who we could have over and the things that we could do and think of the summer nights we're sitting out here and then we could put lights on the fence and we can do all this kind of stuff and we got really excited we're building this deck and then uh, I remember I had this moment where all of a sudden I realized I don't know how to build a deck we had decided I was going to build a deck but I don't know how to build a deck so then I thought well this is great but I'm going to have to go get some help so I thought, I got to go find somebody that knows how to do this, and maybe they'll help me. And I, I had a friend. His name is Tony. And I go, okay, I'm going to ask Tony if he'll help me build a deck, because I know he's done this kind of stuff before, and uh, I bet you he'll help me out. So I go, hey, Tony, we had this great plan. I got him all excited about the lights on the fence and the whole deal. And he's getting excited. Hey, do you mind, would you come help me out for a few days and build this deck? And he goes, yeah, I'll help you out. That's no problem. And then I said, okay, but you just need to know it's more like I'm going to help you out, because I don't know how to do this, and you know how to do this. So is that okay? You're going to have to build me a deck, but I'll be there and I'll supervise and I'll help out and I'll bring snacks and all the rest of it. So Tony goes, okay, this is, no, that's great. We'll figure, Dave, we can figure this out together. I'm very confident we can figure this out together. He goes, I'm not a pro though. You need to know that. Like this isn't his professional life, but he, I've done this before. I guarantee that you that we'll figure it out along the way. He said, I'll guarantee you of a couple of things because it might not be pretty every step of the way. He goes, we'll figure it out, but we're gonna be figuring it out on the go. But here's two things I promise you. At the end of the day, it's gonna look really good, exactly like you want it. It's gonna be very functional and all the rest of it. And it's gonna be level. Those are the two things he said to me. It's gonna look great, it's gonna be what you want, and it's going to be level. And what I've learned about my friend Tony since then, I didn't fully know this, but he is very, very, very particular. It's one of the things I learned about him as we built a deck together. This thing is going to be level. So we had a short timeline of when we needed to get this done. There was this period of time where I had a few days off and he had a few days off. He doesn't live super close, he's kind of a commute in, but he's like, I can give you these couple of days where I can come in and I was off for a few days. Okay, we'll probably make it work, but it's going to be a tight squeeze. Let's do this. And so he comes and the first thing that we had to do was we had to dig these big holes for the posts. This is going to be our foundation. So I go and I rent one of these big augers. Have you seen? It just looks like a huge drill. It was a two-person thing. So one person on one side, the other. We got these big handles and we're holding on. And so we rent the thing. We come to my backyard. One of the things we found out early on that day is there's a lot of big rocks in my backyard. So we drill down through the mud and through the, and then we hit a rock and one of us goes flying because the thing stops. And I'm told you can get better augers that don't do that and safety, whatever. But we're flying around the backyard every time we hit a thing. We're starting to get bruised. We're bleeding a little bit. But we're like, okay, we got to do this because we only have a few days to get the whole thing done. And we're committed to it. Now, as the day went along, we picked a time in the beginning of the spring to get this done. Now, if you live near here, you know, sometimes beginning of the spring is a lot like winter. And so by the time we got to midday, it started raining, and it was that rain where it's like it's just warm enough to not be 
snow or something else, just rain, but cold enough that you just do not want to be out there. And so we're there, but now it's like, well, we rented the thing, and I got to take it back tomorrow. I don't want to pay the extra or whatever it's going to be. So we're committed. We got holes going in, um, but all of a sudden, we're getting drenched. It's getting cold and, and wet, and we're, we're kind of miserable. And by this point, you know, the afternoon's coming, and I think we had to do like 12 or 14 post holes. And so we're getting tired, and we're sort of stumbling around the backyard, and I fell in a hole at one point that we already dug. And, that was, and then we're getting the concrete, because we got to put the concrete in so the post can go in and it was raining so much we didn't even have to use the hose because the the holes were filling up with water and we just dumped the concrete in and it's setting there and we finally get to the end of the day absolutely drenched we're bleeding a little bit we're tired we're, we're a little bit grumpy the whole deal and we sit down but all the posts were in and as soon as they set we went along and we measured everything so particular. I was so happy with Tony that he was this very detail-oriented person. And we made sure that every post was going to be exactly level. And I tell you this story because if you ever come over to my house and you hang out on my deck, you will never, ever see any of that. But I want you to know how hard it was to do. And if you bring a level, it is Spot on. So now every time my friend Tony comes over, he jokes. He's like, where's the level? I'm going to check it. And we go, don't worry. That thing is so level. It is strong. It is built right. And we've been in this series the last couple of weeks. We're talking about our faith, and we're talking about not just as individuals, but collectively our faith. And it's called order and disorder and reorder. And today I want to talk a little bit about our foundation to make sure that things are level. Because what would happen is if those posts weren't level, if they didn't set right and everything wasn't where it ought to be, then nothing else that we built onto that deck, all the stuff you see, the stuff you actually stand on and walk on and sit on, none of it would have been right if it wasn't level. So we talked about the fact that um, oftentimes in our lives, in our growth, in our faith, we see a pattern of order and disorder and reorder. We start with order. We build some kind of life of faith. We decide what our basic beliefs are. We decide about our lifestyle and how we're going to live. And a lot of the times, it's really good. And those are really important steps. But usually what we build in our early days of faith, or when maybe we're young, we're teenagers, we're young adults, or it's later in life, but it's our first thing, is this order that works, but is a little bit surface. It's a little bit shallow. Don't get me wrong. It's not bad. It's just how it works. It's a step in the growing process. Sometimes here's what it looks like. We get really excited about our faith to the point where even we're zealous. We want to change the world and we want to share our faith with everybody we meet and we want everybody else to know what we have found. And we get just this thing that goes, I figured this out and I got I to gotta put it out to everyone. We get super, super excited. Sometimes we get really dogmatic because we learn certain things and we go, this is so important. We learn something about the Bible, about faith, about theology, and it gets really into us. And we go, okay, that's what I believe in and I can't waver from that. We get sometimes very black and white, sometimes very rules-focused, and none of those things in and of themselves are really bad, but you can see some of the dangers if we don't grow past them, can't you? That if we're not careful, those things become, um, they become hypocrisy because we're so excited and everybody should live this way, and then we realize that we can't really live that way. Sometimes it becomes pride and arrogance because we think even though we're starting out, we figured out everything and everybody who doesn't believe what I believe is wrong and, and they got to change their mind and all this kind of stuff. Sometimes it can be very judgmental. 
because this is how I'm supposed to live, and so now I know how you're supposed to live, and even if I'm not walking in your shoes or I don't know what you're going through or where you're at or how to meet you or where you're at, we have this idea that this is exactly how things should be. And so we get to a place, usually at some point in our life, where there's some kind of disruption, disorientation, disorder, where we realize that maybe some of those things don't work. It's not that we have to throw it all out, but that we just maybe need to find something that is deeper, more meaningful, that works better when life gets complicated, when things get hard. When, when things don't just end up the way that we thought they were going to go, when life isn't just a straight line uh, up and to the right, but all of a sudden there's problems and it's messy and I don't know what to do and now I'm confused and what I used to think and do doesn't quite work. What do I come to now? And so today we just want to look at what that might be at that level where we are building a foundation again and ask how do we build something that is level so that everything else we build on it is strong and it works and it's level. So I want to read to you from Zechariah chapter 4. This is a a prophetic book towards the end of the Old Testament. And the people uh, of Israel have come back from exile. They've been in Babylon. Uh, They've been scattered. It's been a really rough time. They've come back to Israel, and now they're going to rebuild their temple, which is where they come to worship, which is the center of their community, the center of their politics, the center of really everything that they do together. And they're rebuilding the temple, and there's a guy we're going to meet named Zerubbabel, who's a governor, and he's kind of in charge of the project. But first comes uh, this prophetic word to a prophet named Zechariah for Zerubbabel. Here's what it says in Zechariah chapter 4. Then the angel had been talking with me, returned, and woke me as though I had been asleep. What do you see now, he asked. So Zechariah, by the way, in the book, if you're reading through it, there's a bunch of visions. Like, he's getting all these visions, it seems like, in one night. By this point, he's exhausted. It's like the angel comes to him and has to wake him up. He's just, you know, he's hearing from God, and these are important things for the community. He says, what do you see? So he's going to see a vision. He said, I answered, I see a gold, a solid gold lampstand with a bowl of oil on top of it. Around the bowl are seven lamps, each having seven spouts with wicks. And I see two olive trees, one on each side of the bowl. Then I asked the angel, what are these, my Lord? What do they mean? Don't you know, the angel asked. No, my Lord, I replied. I really like that. This is one of those parts in the Bible where I just appreciate the honesty. Right? This guy's seeing this crazy thing. Here's a lampstand, and there's a big bowl, and there's a couple of trees. And the angel's like, you know what it means? And he goes, no. What, what is that? Which is good news for us because probably most of us, you're reading through, if you're reading through Zechariah and you got this far and somebody goes, you know what that means? You would go, no, I don't know what that means. Explain it to me. So this is good. We're going to fill this in together. A uh, little bit of background. This whole idea of this lampstand, the solid gold thing and what's going on. We read about something like that in Exodus chapter 25. The people have a tabernacle, which is the precursor to the temple. It's portable. They're moving it along as they journey uh, to Israel. It's back after the Exodus. It's their place of worship, but it's a huge tent that they set up, and they tear down, and they go somewhere else on their journeys. They set it up. They tear it down. In the tabernacle, there was a a lampstand like this. And what would happen is they would keep it going. It was the light for all of their religious activities. So in the tabernacle, there was a lot of stuff going on, sacrifices, different practices for worship. People have to come in, and especially when it got dark, you needed a light. And so they had this lampstand. The people would have to bring, as part of their sacrifices and part of what they brought for worship, would have to bring oil with them. The priests would have to keep putting the oil in so that the lamp would keep going. So 
picture all night. Here comes the priest. I got to refill it. Got to refill it. Got to refill it. We got to make sure. And then it was the light so that A, they could see what they were doing. That's important. But B, it was kind of symbolic of the presence of God in this space where they go to worship God. It, it was this light that these people were supposed to be that was empowered by the presence of God. We go and worship and we're reminded of these things. This is where, where God is and sets us uh, on our path. And so um, they had this. And just picture. So picture the work that goes into keeping the lamp going. People got to bring the oil. Priests got to refill it. Priests got to refill it over and over and over. When we see this picture, the big difference between what we see in Zechariah chapter 4 and Exodus um, 25 is that there's this big basin of oil. So around the lampstand, there's this big basin that keeps the oil in it so it can go for longer. And then you see these olive trees on both sides of the lampstand. We skip down a few verses to uh, verse 11. We're going to come back to the verses that we skip, but it's going to make sense when we go back to them because the message that God gives to Zechariah to deliver to Zerubbabel makes sense based on the context before and after. Verse 11 says, so then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on each side of the lampstand? And what are the two olive branches that pour out golden oil through the two gold tubes? So you got, you know, these tubes coming from the branches of the tree into the, the lamp where the bowl is and everything. And he says, don't you know? And he goes, no, come on, just explain this to me. Okay. Then he said to me, they represent the two anointed ones who stand in the court of the Lord of all the earth. So the trees are two anointed ones. We, we get the uh, word here uh, in Hebrew, the Messiah be the Christ in, in Greek, the, the anointed one, that God has anointed someone to do something significant for the worshiping community. The two trees, it's pretty much recognized by scholars, are Zerubbabel, who's the governor rebuilding the temple, and Joshua, who is the high priest uh, and kind of leads the, the temple activities for the people. So now we have this golden land stamp that is, is symbolic of the presence of God empowering the people of God to be the light of the world that they're called to. And instead of having um, these these people and priests that have to keep coming and refilling the oil over and over and over. Man, it's a lot of work to keep this thing going. Now you have a lampstand in the middle with a big basin, so there's lots of oil. It can always keep going. And how is it all flowing? How does it all keep oil enough oil for it to go? There are these living trees that have oil flowing through them and out of them and into the rest of the thing to make sure that the lamp goes, that this is supposed to flow. And who are the anointed ones that are these life giving trees it's the ones who are leading the religious and spiritual community you see this symbolism here you've been working so hard to keep this all going but listen the word of the lord comes to zechariah and i'm going to plant you as trees around this entire thing so that my spirit will flow through you and out of you such that it empowers the community to be the light that they are always meant to be oh it's beautiful isn't it it's a very beautiful picture of spirituality, of the spiritual life. And when we can move for a from a place where we feel like it all depends on me and I'm working so hard and I'm getting burnt out and I just can't do this anymore to a place where as a living being, the spirit of God flows through you and out of you to make a difference in the community. And so we have the trees of Zerubbabel and Joshua, and we have the oil, which is the Holy Spirit, flowing through them as leaders to empower the system to be something different than it had been before. And I think what it means is that God is continually supplying all the needs of his people so that they can be the light to display the presence of God in the world. Beautiful, beautiful picture of what spirituality 
ought to be. You know, Zerubbabel, this governor, his name literally means scattered in Babylon. Zerubbabel, but the bubble part is uh, Babylon, and the first part is scattered, and it's this idea of uh, you have been scattered, and so the people have been in exile. This is about the worst thing that could happen to the people of Israel is being in exile. It means you've been, you've been conquered by your enemies. You've been taken out of your nation. You've been planted into a place where you don't feel like you belong. And worst of all, they believe that this was really a sign that God's presence was not among them. And so you have Zerubbabel, who literally means scattered in Babylon, which is what the people were now rebuilding the temple in Israel, rebuilding something that hopefully is stronger and better and that will last. And God's word to him is, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to make this thing work by the flowing of my Holy Spirit. And as you are a living person, I'm going to bring naturally my spirit flowing through you to empower a system that depends on my Holy Spirit. Now we go back to verse 6. So sandwiched in between these explanations of what these uh, visions are, it says this powerful verse, beautiful verse which I think summarizes all the vision of what we're supposed to get, even if at first we go, this is weird. Then he said to me, this is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It is not by force, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Not by force, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. A couple of important terms. First, force. Force and strength, uh, in some ways, they kind of mean the same thing. But they, uh, there's a range of meanings in each of them that might help us to understand what the message is. So force could mean strength, efficiency, wealth. It could even be translated army. So you get the picture, right? Here are some of the things that we believe are the strongest things in the world, strongest things in our life. My strength, my ability to be efficient, our wealth and our money, our military, these things that we all depend on to, to, to be something, to be safe, to be secure, to be significant, to fight off our enemies, whatever it might be. Strength uh, is often translated power or ability, uh, human power, when I'm depending on what I can do in and of myself. So here's Zerubbabel, whose names reminds us of the, the people who are scattered in, Zerubbabel, in uh, Babylon. We've got a real problem. We're out there. We need to be brought back. And he's rebuilding the temple. And he's put himself to the task of rebuilding God's presence and his blessing. And at the center of his faith for his people, God's word to him comes and says, As you rebuild, we're not just going back to what we, we had before. It's not going to be by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Here will be our foundation. This is what we will build off of. This is where we will come back. Man, I love this because for those of us who maybe have come to that place where we realize we need to build a stronger faith, we need to build something stronger for our lives that's going to work. For those of us who are looking at our community, our church, and saying, uh, what are we going to look like in a future? What do we need to work on together? How do we go there? I think the word comes to us even as Westside and say, listen, it's not going to be my money. It's not going to be by what looks good on the surface. It's not going to be through your personalities. It's not going to be because you're talented by people. It's not going to be because of branding. It's not going to be because of force or coercion or guilt or efficient programming or because you're super clever that you're going to do something significant. It's going to be by my spirit living inside of you and flowing through you. Something real and something powerful. Uh, Jesus taught us this. John chapter 15, he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
What is our role? Our role is, is to abide in Jesus, that he is the branch that feeds everything for our lives. Our job is to live in him and allow him to empower our lives. Quickly, I want to talk about three ways that we can do that. How do we allow the spirit to flow through us such that it's this, this natural expression that we, we grow in him and that we are stewards of his presence in the way that we see pictured in the lampstand and, and these trees. Three metaphors in the New Testament about the Holy Spirit. Number one, drinking the Spirit. Ephesians 5 verse 18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled by the Spirit. I don't think I'm supposed to do this, but I'm going to tell you how to get drunk on wine. Okay, it's not super hard. You take wine that's in a bottle or poured in a glass, and you drink it. And when you drink it, and then you drink a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more, over time, the more wine that goes from outside of you to inside of you, the more the wine influences you. If you keep drinking more and more and more, eventually the wine influences you so much that you lose control. That's what debauchery is. You do things you wouldn't do if you didn't have that much wine inside of you. You become filled with it, and as you filled with it, you surrender yourself, whether at that point you like it or not, it's too late. You surrender yourself to its influence in your life, at least for a time. The contrast here is, don't get drunk on the wine, okay, we see where that goes, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? It means I want to take the Holy Spirit and make sure that he, the Holy Spirit is inside of me, that I'm internalizing the Holy Spirit because God wants to change us from the inside out. That's how true transformation works, that God wants to fill us. And so what does that look like? It looks like surrendering to the influence of the Holy Spirit. And the more we are surrendered to the Holy Spirit speaking inside of us as we read scripture, as we learn from one another, as we worship him, as we serve people, as we become attentive, like we sang about this morning, to the Holy Spirit in our lives, the more we yield ourselves to him and his influence, the more he takes over our lives. And instead of losing control, we actually give control to the Holy Spirit We'll talk about what that looks like in just one minute. Second uh, metaphor is walking in the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, again, Paul here contrasts what it looks like to not walk in the Spirit, but now he says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Walking here walking by the Spirit, is a metaphor for the decisions that we make. It's a wisdom language type of thing. When you walk, it just means I put one foot in front of the other. When you walk wisdom-wise, it just means this is the decision I make today on how to live. This is the decisions I make in my finances, decisions I make in my marriage, decisions I make in a relationship or friendship, decisions I make about work. Paul says walk in the Spirit. Every time you make a decision to yield yourself to the Spirit and add an action or an attitude to what God is speaking to you, you build those little muscles, those little spiritual muscles get a little bit stronger and a little bit stronger as we walk. I want to be a generous person. Well, you go, man, I've, some people, they just, they can give away anything, and I'm not like that. Where do you start? Just with one little step in giving away a little bit more to someone who's in need than you have been. Or making your giving just a little bit more regular to kingdom purposes. Oh, I want to be a forgiving person. How to become a forgiving person? There's people who have betrayed me and hurt me so badly I could never forgive them. How do I become a more forgiving people? Will you just start by walking step by step with the Spirit, forgiving the small slights that maybe just offend your ego, but build that muscle of forgiveness in your life. These are our habits and our disciplines that make us stronger. We, we walk 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't mean that we don't put any effort in. We walk with the Spirit. And when we do that, he strengthens us over time. Third metaphor is growing in the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is like the picture of Zerubbabel and Joshua with the trees. This isn't pretending to be something that you're not. This isn't faking it. I actually love the metaphor of fruit because you can't fake fruit. You can fake results. You can put on a smile when you're out. You can pretend to be something that you're not. But fruit you cannot fake. Fruit grows when a plant is healthy. You see the fruit because of what's going on, because the, the, the plant is nourished properly. And in health, what flows through those nourishments becomes fruit. And so if we would go, how do I know that I'm really growing in my faith? Is it because I'm becoming more opinionated? Is it because uh, I'm comparing better to other people? Is it because I can kind of build myself up? No, it's because fruit grows. And so you ask yourself, am I more loving than I was a year ago, five years ago? Am I experiencing more joy in my life or peace or patience, kindness, goodness? We go down the whole thing. And we go, these are things you can't fake if you're just real and honest you know, am I yielding to the Holy Spirit, being filled by the Holy Spirit? And then am I walking with the Spirit, allowing my attitudes and my actions to be in step with what the Spirit is telling me and teaching me? Am I growing? Is more fruit coming in my life? And if that's kind of what we use as our standard of what's level and what's meaningful and what's strong, it's going to change the way we think about our religious system and our faith and, and what's really important Verse 7 in Zechariah 4 says, Nothing, not even a mighty mountain will stand in Zerubbabel's way. It will become a level plain before him. And when Zerubbabel sets the final stone of the temple in place, the people will shout, May God bless it! May God bless it! I love that. Some people, we don't know exactly what the mountain is supposed to make us think of. Some people think it's actually the mountain of the previous temple, all the rubble that had been, you know, had been destroyed. And so there's this maybe big mountain that you actually look of. Look at the rubble. Like, this is a huge project. We could never rebuild this. Some people think it's just opposition from people that didn't want the temple to be rebuilt or enemies that would come and destroy the temple. And maybe it's a bit of all of those things, but it's God saying there's not even going to be any mountain that will stand in Zerubbabel's way when he's depending on the Holy Spirit to do what God has called him to do. And God's blessing is going to be upon it. And people are going to shout, may God bless it. May God bless it. This is the presence of God living here. And then another message came to me from the Lord. Verse 8, now verse 9. Zerubbabel is the one who laid the foundation of this temple and he will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of heaven's army has sent me. Can you imagine being Zerubbabel, who's just been trying to build this thing, and it's just all the opposition, and it's too hard, and we're never going to do it, and it's taking too long, and we're too tired, and we're too exhausted, and God's saying, Zerubbabel, you're going to complete this thing. People are going to shout about the blessing of God, because I'm doing something in your midst. It's almost like this encouragement. Keep going, man, brick by brick, and every time you see the opposition, just know there's no mountain that is too big. There's nothing that's going to stand in the way of God doing what God is going to do, and then he says, and do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. There is no mountain too big, and there is no step too small, because God builds big things through seemingly small steps empowered by his Holy Spirit. I wonder if we believe that in our lives, in our community. 
You just take one step and you don't look and go, man, I'm so far away. It's going to take so long. I can't believe that I did this again and I messed this up. There's no beginning too small, but all the opposition's coming against. It's going to be too hard and we're going to be too exhausted. And there's no mountain too big because this doesn't happen in your power, not by your might or by your strength. God's spirit is flowing through you as a living being, flowing through us as a living community to steward the presence of God and to keep the lamp on the light of God's presence in this world. May his kingdom come. And at the very end, it says, and so the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. Here's Zerubbabel standing there, plumb line, basically a, a big cord that has got big weight on it. So it's straight down so that you can make sure that your vertical lines are truly vertical, that everything is straight so that everything will fit together, so that everything gets built properly. And God says, it's exactly what I want to see. You go to work in my power, Zerubbabel. Ultimately, the ultimate Zerubbabel, the anointed one, is Christ. So the Christ means that we're not following Zerubbabel, but I think he was prefiguring Jesus who would come with the true plumb line and show us exactly what life looks like, exactly where to build out from, that we see in his death and his resurrection, the sacrificial love of God giving himself for the people that he loved, and Jesus saying, and I will give you my Holy Spirit to empower everything good and beautiful and wonderful in your life. So be filled by the Holy Spirit and walk in the Holy Spirit and watch God grow fruit in you by the Holy Spirit. This is where we build our faith as we follow Jesus. And God's kingdom comes not by might, not by power, but by his Spirit. So Heavenly Father, uh, right now, we would just ask that you would help us to, uh, like we were saying earlier, to become more attentive to your Holy Spirit, that we would tune in uh, to what you're doing in our lives, to what you're saying to us, how you're speaking to us, that you give us the courage to yield to you and allow you to influence our lives, to transform us, that you would help our steps in whatever we do to, to match up with uh, what you're teaching us and, and how you're empowering us to live. We pray that we'd be the kind of people that fruit would grow in and that we would see ourselves becoming love, more loving and more patient and more gracious and all those beautiful things that we read on that list, God, that that would be true of our community. We pray that whatever we think is of use as we gather and as we run programs and as we try and share our faith with the world, we would be dependent on you for and your Holy Spirit. And as that happens, we simply pray that you would help us to yield and be dependent on you, to trust you, to bring your will and your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven.